Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Bruce Vojak, researcher, author, and managing director of Breakthrough Innovation Advisors. In today's episode, we're going to dive into some of Bruce's learnings that came out of his writing, Serial Innovators. Bruce and his co-authors immerse themselves in the problems of a people view of innovation rather than a process and structure or cultural view of innovation. We're also going to dive into the concept of VUCA, V-U-C-A, which stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous, a term that came out of the military, and it's a concept that is invaluable to help you navigate and excel even in the middle of chaos. The biggest theme or so what that I hope you take away from this conversation is that VUCA is best utilized as a power tool for companies, giving them a framework of sorts to help accomplish innovation goals amid chaotic markets. It fits so well with the theme of Fast Frontiers as innovation is happening faster and faster. Perhaps we need to add another letter, AVUCA, for accelerating volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Perfect descriptors of today's present world, isn't it? Bruce Vojak is an author, researcher, and consultant. He co-authored Serial Innovators, How Individuals Create and Deliver Breakthrough Innovations in Mature Firms. Bruce also serves on the board of directors at Midtronics, the advisory board of JVA Partners, and on the board of Micron Industries. He consults with major corporations like Procter & Gamble and is the founder of Breakthrough Innovation Advisors. Bruce has also served as Associate Dean and Adjunct Professor at the College of Engineering at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And early in his career was Director of Advanced Technology for Motorola's non-semiconductor component business, where he held research and business development positions. Bruce has a Bachelor's of Highest Honors, uh, Master's and PhD degrees in Electrical Engineering from University of Illinois, and an MBA from University of Chicago. Please enjoy my conversation with Bruce Vojak. There's so many different topics I'd love to explore with you. But first, let's just talk about kind of what led you to the, the, that book and getting together with your, your colleagues there in terms of serial innovators. How did that come about? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting story, Tim. I, um, when I went to work at the University of Illinois, it was a mid-career change, early 40s. And in addition to my administrative role, I, I took on uh, some adjunct responsibilities to do uh, some teaching and research. And when I was trying to decide what direction to go with the research, I got some really good advice from a department head, Harry Cook. He said, just explore some things you're familiar with. And I thought, well, what have I, how have I spent the first half of my career? And it was with primarily large organizations and looking to try to diversify or renew them and move in new directions. And so my interest started from that point. And through a couple of serendipitous interactions, I started collaborating with Ray Price and uh, Abby Griffin. And we worked literally 10 years, various research projects before we wrote the book. So we really had immersed ourselves in these problems of if what I might call a people view of innovation rather than a process view or structure view or culture view of innovation. That's great. I love that. I, I, we have invested in, I talk about human capital, you know, not yeah. HR, but the importance of human capital going forward in companies. And one of the things I think you pointed out was that, you know, all the research on innovation has taken this perspective that you can manage that process. Yes. That it was like a pipeline, do these things up front and then predictably innovation comes out the back end. And, and that's not true, is it? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. And I, I just, I'm in the middle of writing some things up. So your timing is, is uncanny because <laughs> literally just yesterday I was trying to, to work through how to articulate this and hopefully that'll help today. But in a nutshell, a lot of these processes can be helpful. They can be really helpful. I mean, people who talk about design thinking, people who talk about, you know, phase gate processes and things like that, and even developing roadmaps, these are all good tools and processes, but while they help you, they won't guarantee success. And so if you don't have those, you're likely going to either be very inefficient or unsuccessful, but having them will very likely not guarantee success. And this is where the people come in. It's kind of like saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a world-class chef, uh, but I also have a few recipes in a book on the side. And so the recipes help you, but the world-class chef knows how to go in and, if you will, season to taste. And, and that's what a lot of innovation looks like. It's that human side. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I use often for innovation taking place in other regions, the example of LeBron James yeah. and the Cavs, right? The Cavs had all the components for success. They had all the ingredients, right? They had the coaches, they had the money, they had the fans. Yep. But you needed the catalyst. Yes. Right? Yeah. The catalyst was LeBron, and that was unpredictable. You, you, know, you, you couldn't plan for that. But, but, but without him, you likely weren't going to make it happen. Exactly. Exactly. You couldn't guarantee it with him, but you had an infinitely better chance. Exactly. So it's like, what what do those catalysts look like? How can you spot them? And, you know, I I, I also have a, an electrical engineering degree, but only two letters. Uh, so a lot less than, than time than you spent um, from Case Western Reserve University. And Great I've... When I was picking a major, I picked that because I knew the world was going to be more complex yep. and technology oriented. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I, I, I thought having an understanding of the physical sciences was really important. So what role does that play in informing your views and perspectives on innovation? Having, having that technical background. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually kind of, a, again, another fascinating question. If you look at uh, the three of us who collaborated on the earlier book, Abby Griffin, Ray Price, and myself, Abby had a, a, we all brought PhDs, if you will, to the problem, and Abby and I both brought MBAs, but Abby came very much from a marketing and product development background. Ray came from an organizational behavior background, and I came from a technical background. And so we came with three very complementary views of things. And one of the things that impressed me by the people we interviewed in the study was that I'm going to say very few had, let's say, PhDs in a technical area. They were very often people with bachelor's degrees in engineering or science, just amazing insight, ability to connect the dots, to see patterns, to see trends. And so while they didn't carry, if you will, that credential of background, they were clearly the kind of people that could see and do things that other couldn't. Now, I will say that most of the companies we looked at were what I would call technically enabled. So they weren't necessarily high tech companies. They weren't ones that were founded based on technology, but they were enabled by it. So the people that we looked at were, uh, again, very impressively uh, able to work with those technologies. So my background initially was to look for technology and I'll say now I'm, I'm infinitely more open to, uh, you know, very different business models and business innovation, if you will, because there's so many different ways that a company can go about doing these things. 
that's what I like about startups is you, you're basically starting with a clean slate right from the beginning yes. every time. You're yeah. designing the organization from scratch yes. and, and you rarely get to do that inside a big company. Right uh, there. In fact, yeah, just the opposite. You have, you're, right. you have many more constraints in a big company. Right. So back to the, but back to the engineering understanding and, and sort of, you know, there's a, there's, you know, a, a lot of physics involved in electrical engineering and yep. when you apply that to the process of innovation, not the innovation itself, but the process and knowing what things like, you know, whether it's chaos theory or emergent properties of yeah. complex systems and how that plays into the innovation process and your conclusion or findings that uh, innovation is is not a highly managed process or it's difficult to be that that must give you some it it, it does and actually you you couldn't have framed this better for me so thanks i one of the things that has struck me and this is outside of the work that i did with with abby and ray but i've looked at what uh, i kind of refer to as and it is the epistemology of innovation oh i i wanted to use that word i had to, you know, I wanted to, like this is my chance to use epistemology come on I get I get I get regularly told you gotta you gotta stop calling that it that even though it is you gotta stop calling it that but it's well, people like me will like it we'll geek out on it. It's really the uh, philosophical philosophical uh, understanding of how people come to know, and so I've spent a lot of time trying to to get my mind around, if you will, what does it mean that when innovators come to know things, and what I found is that my my background, if you will, in applied physics has been incredibly helpful because. One of the things I realized, and I'll, I will try to keep this concise, there, there are two patterns in how people approach knowing things. There's what I would call a, a very modern view and modern, you know, as in the last couple hundred years. And that's, that's a very, uh, where people come at a problem and they detach themselves from it. They break it into its pieces and they try to linearize it. So if you've ever looked at the problem of how a pendulum works, you know, you step away from it, we don't interfere with it. We uh, break it into its basic elements, the mass and the gravity, and then we, uh, we linearize it. We don't look at the whole range. And that's really how engineering and science is taught. In fact, as an aside, um, Tim, I'll mention this here in this recording that Dave Goldberg, who introduced us, has made great effort in really trying to understand and let's say change or adapt engineering education. And so what I'll say, this is these ideas of being detached, being you know reductionist in how we solve a problem and being linear uh, is really the foundation of all undergraduate engineering programs. And uh, it's the ticket, if you will, to get into a company or a startup if you're gonna work in anything tech related. The difference though, and that's this modern view. The difference though is that there's another view, and, and I would say it's not postmodern because that carries other connotations of of kind of to me randomness almost. So but modern and modern was really, as David Goldberg yes. talks about, is more industrial modern. Yes. And that's what I you know, can I tell you, thank you. That's right. So when I know about modernity, I talk about you know, Descartes, if you will, mm -hmm. going forward. So, mm -hmm. but that way of, of the way of addressing problems. And yet in this other view, which is the one that I see relentlessly in the innovators, instead of being uh, detached, they're very intimately involved in understanding the problem. Instead of being reductionist, breaking it into its elements, they look at it holistically. And instead of being linear, they look at it very nonlinearly. And so, 
these are two almost diametrically opposing views of the world. And you know what I find fascinating is, is the one is the ticket in, but the second one, which is so, so very rare, is the one that really distinguishes the, the ones that may appear to be innovative from the ones that truly are innovative. It's, it seems like it's almost as, or not almost, but is as fundamental as kind of Newtonian view of the world. Yes, yes. Right versus the you know relative and Einstein quantum view of the world, or or biological, instead yes. of instead of machine metaphors that we used during the industrial age, yeah, we're now going to use biological slash neural metaphors, right, which is more yeah. connected, massively connected systems. Yes, and and you know, and you use the word emergent and 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 chaos, and meaning to me mathematically chaotic, which is a good thing, not random. The whole, you know, your metaphor of, of, uh, of life sciences, if you will, is great because you really can't reduce that to its underlying physics and still return to the life. There's that, there's that, that there's something missing, if you will, between those two levels. And that's the beauty of emergent behavior, that there's something that when it all comes together, there's something more than just them being there. And, you know, you even hear it in the language the innovators use. They often talk about, you know, I see... Uh, I see fuzzy things in my mind's eye. I connect the dots. I mean, you, I just would love to hear their stories because you could hear them talking about these things as they discuss their experiences. Right. It's more emotional, intuitive leaps, right? Yeah, you know, it is intuitive. And, and I'll go just briefly back to the work of Michael Polanyi, who is not all that well known, but he's the one who, who uh, spoke of tacit knowledge. And tacit knowledge is very, very misunderstood today. As an aside, people think of tacit knowledge as something that we need to make explicit. And that's not the case. Tacit knowledge truly is this unarticulable way of knowing things. And, and Tac this tactile knowledge, right. It, 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 part of it can be tactile, actually. Yes, it can be. I mean, it's, but it's this integrating without being able to articulate it. Mm -hmm. And, and what happens actually, you mentioned tactile, very often what happens is people rely so much on their brains and not on other senses that they lose a lot in, in really knowing things. So therefore, can you, can, can this innovation process or can an innovator, are innovators born or, or are they taught? Uh, yeah, you know, there's, uh, we, had, we had actually uh, come at this a couple of ways. We had done a survey and asked people just exactly that question, among other questions. You know, it, it, nobody said that they could fully be taught that way, but when you went to the other end of the spectrum, they kind of stopped short of being fully born to. I, I'd say that, you know, what I've observed is that you can, you can encourage creativity, you can give them some ideas about what patterns exist when creativity occurs. You can you can help them uh, you can help them see things that they might not normally have seen or think of things in ways they might not normally have thought, but can we make a production line to do this? I'm not yet convinced because I I have to tell you the people that I see who do it are just remarkable and and really quite different and and typically they begin to emerge in kind of the I'm going to say five to maybe five fifteen years in an organization you've pretty much begun to see these patterns. You know, we'll use more metaphors here, like a sommelier that, you know, you, you can, you know, can tell what's a good wine. The right managers or other serial innovators can actually identify these at times by just seeing 
patterns of behavior. There are a lot of analogies to music as well, right? We were just talking, yeah. you know, I play guitar, Goldberg plays guitar. Yeah. Uh, and some of the some of the best, you know, guitar legends didn't necessarily know the theory. Yes. They, they didn't. As a matter of fact, that probably would have slowed them down. Yes. They were making those intuitive leaps. They were connecting things between their their what they were hearing in their head and their fingers. Yes. Right? Yes. But, but again, I want to be really clear. I'm not making this an either or versus the process. Sure. I don't want to. I don't want to pan the process because that really would be um, damaging, really, to the insight. So what? So your focus has been primarily on large corporations, big big co's, as we like to call them. What? What do you think the advantages and disadvantages if you were to compare startups, you know, venture back startups versus big co's? Yeah, and and let me just briefly add too. I don't. I don't. Tim, I don't know if we even had a chance to share this. Over the last, I'd say, five plus years, I've also worked a lot with uh, small and medium-sized mature companies. And so, again, not startups, but all on this mature side, so various different sizes. And I see a lot of the same patterns, actually, in the small and medium-sized companies. But one of the things is that, like a startup, they have more opportunity to be agile, if you will. They, They have a little more opportunity to turn and move. You know, the standard differences between a large, mature company and a startup. In a large, mature company, you know, if you think about it, they're optimized, and for good reason, they're optimized to to make uh, products that are reliable, reproducible. They're looking to do things that are, are, are trying to make a process that's stable. And these are all good things. These are things that if you went back like to reading Adam Smith, and economies of scale and scope, you'd say, yes, the, the large company is doing exactly what it should be doing. The problem is, is that if that culture is left as it is to become mature and you don't renew it on a periodic basis or regular basis, uh, it will ossify. And that's where startups you know, can have an advantage. Now, again, if a startup is a technology push and they really don't identify you know, real customer needs, they'll lose for their own reasons, you know. But the thing about these innovators that we we interviewed in our research, serial innovators, is that um, they took a large company and they were able to not only see opportunity that most wouldn't see, uh, wouldn't be able to see, if you will, or have the skill set to, but they also saw within the company how to navigate the company. And that's tricky. I mean, you know, you can, it's hard enough to move a group of 10 people, let alone, you know, hundreds of people. It's a special skill set that has a it lot is. more with and a special behavior and politics, perhaps. Yeah, yes. And it's a special appetite to be even willing to do that. But it goes, you know, in our our experience, it goes back to people who really wanted to serve the customer. I mean, it's beautiful. They want to serve the customer, they want to serve the shareholders, they want to help their colleagues keep their jobs and retire with, you know, good retirement packages and you know, they're, they're kind of pouring themselves into it. It's beautiful to watch when you see it. I'm a big customer, you know, driven design yes. fan. And that's what I look for in companies we invest in. And you look at, you look at something like Uber, right? When uh, Benchmark was going to, Bill Gurley was going to invest in Uber, say, hey, this is, this is a great service for consumers. And, and I'm sure in the part of his investment memo where he had to talk about risks, he's like, you know, everything, yep. right? The government's yep. going to come. And what you can conclude is that those risks are worth taking because you're doing it on behalf of the consumer. The consumer clearly sees it as a, as a benefit mm-hmm. and an advantage. And if that's true, 
you can you can just about take on anything, right? In terms of other challengers yeah. and forces. Yeah. Or even if part of the 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 market sees an advantage, a big enough part of the market that uh, will get you going. That's really all you need to get started. Yeah, and you then know, that will pull through the rest of the innovation to serve yeah. serve that that unmet need, perhaps. Yeah. One of the other things that you talk about or mention is uh, VUCA. Yes. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. Yes. So let's first talk about, uh, if you could share, what is VUCA yep. and how you came to understand or know what VUCA was. Yeah, VUCA is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And now I've got to frantically see if I can define these properly on the fly with you. But uh, volatile, uh, you know, we, we've lived in a very volatile year here in 2020. I'd say that uh, uh, month to month, week to week, day to day, things are changing constantly. So volatility looks like that. Uncertainty, again, we've lived in that, uh, not knowing what what will happen, if you will, tomorrow. Complexity, we talked about just a moment ago, about having large systems that are viewed holistically, where a very small change in one part of a system can have a huge change somewhere else. So, you know, one slight change in a performance characteristic could make or break, if you will, an entire product or market. And then ambiguity it has to do with how do we, what do we, uh, a sign is meaning or understanding for something. So we might, you and I both might look at a market and you may say, well, I understand it's happening, you know, for this reason. Uh, the market is declining because uh, fewer people own, you know, specialty uh, uh, guitars, let's say. I'm again, truly making this up out of, my, out of my league, you know, and I might say, well, you know, the market is declining because People have less money, you know, less disposable cash. And so that ambiguity has to do with uh, even if we both see the same pattern or trend, how do we understand it? And VUCA originally grew out of um, discussions in the military and uh, the defense industry. And so it, it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful set of descriptors because between all four of those, you really define, I'm sure, well, I've not been in it, the fog of battle, but also the fog of if you will, competition in any industry, whether it's a startup or a mature company. So that's that's my understanding of VUCA. And, and I just thought it just fits so well that I've kind of appropriated it uh, variously <laughs> when I describe the work that I do with companies. And so what, what would be a good example of a, of, a, of a project you've taken on where you've used the VUCA framework to understand a situation? There's a company I work with that... Um, that builds automation equipment. They help uh, other companies build production lines. And they were engaged with a client in the last year or two that uh, had just, for their industry, for the, the automated equipment industry, they had a remarkably VUCA environment. Usually in, in an industry like this, a, a company like the, the one that I work with uh, they're given a set of specs and the company either designs to those specs or they're given a design and the company builds to those specs. In this instance, they were actually told, this is the end goal. We want to have a production facility that looks like this. And you're one of, I don't know, dozens of contractors to come in. And we'll tell you what we want the end product to look like. And we'll tell you where you're working in this. But you're going to have to work out not only with us, but also with the other contractors upstream and downstream to uh, figure out how we're gonna do this, to make the whole system. And so 
you know, there's volatility of, uh, of from day to day, not even knowing exactly what's on your plate, uncertainty about the, the specs and product definition, complexity because a change several steps, you know, up or down process could affect your process and ambiguity again, just kind of, you know, came with the territory. So it was much more a matter of when I talk about VUCA, it's, it's encouraging companies to embrace it uh, because there is this tendency to 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 want to not do VUCA, and that's okay. But when you do that, what happens is is you're you're very much becoming mature, and you're not able to uh, adjust or renew. It so, comes back into that industrial reductionist linear yeah, way of thinking, yeah. right? It serves it serves an important person purpose. But uh, and there's another word I should have used earlier in this. Uh, there's a lot of talk recently about um, ambidextrous organizations. You know being able to both, you know, work in that mature style, but also be able to renew. And so in a way, trying to encourage a company to, to take on those things. And this client actually, independent of my prompting, they took it on. So part of the work I did with them is to document a bit of, of what they were doing and how they were trying to address it. And I mean, amazing group, they just on the fly. I mean, I can, I guess I can mention the name of the company, at least it's West Tech and it's part of JVA Partners. And so, but they took on things that I'd say others in their industry would be very reluctant to take on and they just mm. roll with their sleeves and they did it. And it was, it's just fun to talk to them and fun to watch. And when I say fun, I mean, there's financial and commercial results too. It's not just entertaining me, if you will, but right. uh, to me, that's how I define fun in all this, that they're, they're winning. <laughs> exactly. So I was doing a little research on VUCA and saw that uh, uh, Bill George, who's a senior fellow at Harvard Business School, has kind of a corollary, a VUCA 2.0, he calls it. Uh, Bob Johansson calls it VUCA Prime. But uh, the, the corollary is uh, vision, understanding, courage, and adaptability. Ah, I like, often, I'm going to have to get, look, look this up after we're done. So Yeah, and it's, it's great. I, I think any company, big or small, new or old, trying to survive the next 10, 15 years, um, need to hire the, the human capital element needs yes. to embrace that, right? Because otherwise you'll be lost and you won't be able to keep up. Oh, 10 to, the next 10 to 15 weeks or months. Right. Yeah. So I, I started you know, thinking about this podcast um, about you know the acceleration of innovation, right? These yep. innovations happening faster and faster. Perhaps we need AVUCA, which is an accelerating, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's funny that you say this. I, 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 I've done some work with uh, the conference board and John Metzelar, who's my point of contact there on innovation. Mm-hmm. He talks about uh, we're in the mode of VUCA on steroids. And uh, I'd say it's exactly what you're describing. It's just uh, it's up a notch or two or three. And what about uh, you've seen you know, Google has the 20 percent rule, right? Where yeah. You're basically trying to get a large percent of your employee base thinking creatively or, or innovating in some way and then the opposite which is the skunk works you know or a select yep. group of people that yep. are in the innovation quote unquote innovation group have you seen any differences in those approaches yeah you know and in fact the people that we saw were actually what i might call a third way because uh the, the people that that we identified in our in our research and again we asked we asked our network contacts, hey, can you, can, you, can you tell us about people who 
have taken an idea to the marketplace that's really had a significant impact on the industry and on the company. So, I mean, you know, a billion dollar, you know, revenue impact, if you will, annual revenue for a company that's 20 billion or 30 billion in size. I mean, somebody who really had made a, a, a noticeable difference. And what we found is while, you know, there, there were skunk works in those organizations, some of the organizations, not all, uh, and there were uh, in some of the organizations, these 20%, you know, if you will, guidelines or, or opportunities. Uh, the people who made the big things happen uh, didn't really necessarily uh, come from either of those approaches. And, you know, the skunk work has a, has, can have a challenge or a difficulty in that it's removed from, uh, you really are removed from the marketplace in many cases. And I'm a big fan of the discipline of the marketplace. I mean, we've talked, you know, I just in, earlier in this conversation about, you know, design thinking and, and uh, kind of a design view and this idea of intimately understanding customer and consumer needs, just so important. And I think that the more you separate it out, the, the bigger challenge it is then to bring it back in. Now, I'll, then I'll go and they'll say, what about this 20% rule? And I'll say, it's, it's fine, but the people who really have these big impacts are maybe, you know, one in 300 or one in 600. In fact, my colleague Ray Price had a friend tell him that, uh, you know, I'll leave that this is a joke, so hopefully I, I will tell it appropriately. But if you had a company of 10 engineers, one would be an innovator. If you had a company of 100 engineers, two would be innovators. And 1,000 engineers, three would be innovators. You know? hmm. And then the person said, well, of a company of 10,000, how many would be innovators? And you know, the, the other engineer would naturally say four. And the answer really was none. Be, none. None, because you'd driven them all out, you know? Uh, yeah. And so you're really, you know, in a large company, I, I think it's, it's not unhealthy, but you can't expect that billion-dollar result from these 20% programs. And, and the people who really won were the ones that were embedded in the organization, but they took on the challenges of being in that organization. They didn't need to be pulled out in a skunk works. Mm. So. And finally on that topic, what about the role of M&A? So you, you see a yeah. lot of traditional yeah. companies wanting to be innovators. like, we want to be yes. like Google and if you look at Google or any of the other tech companies, yeah. you know, they acquired YouTube, right? They didn't create YouTube. You know, yep. Google hasn't really created anything since search yeah. right? organically. Yeah, yeah. And it, it seems like so many folks don't necessarily understand it. So what, what's the role of M&A? What have you seen, the companies you've worked with? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Because I, I actually worked, when I was with the Amico Corporation, I was in an M&A group for about three and a half plus years. And uh, hmm. I'd say that if it's a mature company that's doing the acquiring, uh, it becomes very difficult to integrate an acquisition. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned Google. I think they're able to do it because their culture and their expectations and, and you know, everything, their organization is much more in line uh, with the startups. When you have companies that have been, you know, uh, making earth-moving equipment, let's say, acquiring, and I'm just making this up, but acquiring uh, a high-tech company, I think it becomes just difficult for, for both parties. I mean, it even comes, becomes difficult to, to price and to set a value on the stock. 
let alone to realize that value and bring it into the company. So, I mean, I don't mean to be negative and fatalistic. I'm just saying it's a real challenge. So as you think about the pace of innovation, how innovation is changing or may change in the next you know, several years, mm-hmm. what's, what's the, is there like a question or a set of questions that you are still asking that you, you want to get the answer to? So yeah, how, how innovation works or, or something that's just still needs uh, a lot more research that kind of anything nagging at you in terms of this process from what you've seen in your career? Oh boy, this is a great question because I've, I've spent the last several years looking at, uh, as an aside, again, after the large mature companies, I spent several years looking at the small and medium-sized companies and actually some colleagues of ours in Japan, who again, uh, Dave Goldberg introduced us to, had looked at Japanese innovators and they'd seen many of the same patterns we do. So I'd say, uh, I'm, I, I can't, I, I cannot look you in the eye and say, no, it's a done deal. But I, since I'm so consumed right now, wanting to write up the results of what I found, <laughs> I'm not looking at taking on a whole lot new. So that's probably an indictment against me. I, I think yeah. I might not sleep well tonight, Tim. So You need to be a little more curious, Bruce. And it's a solid and good question. And you've totally caught me flat-footed. So I, <laughs> I, uh, apologize. I apologize for that. No, that no, it's the, good. It's good. I just figure there's so much to oh. learn, so many things we don't know about this. That, uh, yeah, there are. I, I'd say, you know, and maybe because I'm, at some level, I've grown comfortable over the years to say, it's okay that there's a certain point at which we can know, and this goes back to the epistemology work that I did. And the question is, how much more can you appropriately know? You know, and so, I mean, I will say, I'll just use this to illustrate and it, it's not nagging at me, but people ask about, you know, machine learning and AI and will that take over for innovation, you know, and, and my response is, well, you know, it, it, it very likely may in some areas, but behind that, there will, I still think be people who are framing the questions and asking it. So I still see it as this very human endeavor. So, uh, and so in my complacency about these things, maybe I'm uh, uh, revealing a weakness that I should reconsider. So in all seriousness, I mean, it's a good question. It really is. Thank you very much for spending the time with me. I think uh, uh, this has been a great conversation. I think uh, our listeners are going to love it. Good. I, I hope so. Thank you very much. All right, Bruce, take care. Thanks, Tim. Take care. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Nikki Shavak, partner at Blackbird Ventures in Australia. 